Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining our webcast. Today, we're pleased to present Lean Startup 101. I'm Melissa Tinatigan, executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening December 8 to 12 in San Francisco. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speakers today are Janice Fraser and Sarah Milstein. Janice Fraser, a senior consultant at Pivotal Labs, is a globally recognized leader of Lean Startup methodology and the founder of Luxor, the leading provider of coaching products for startup founders worldwide. Janice is a serial entrepreneur, designer, and advisor to early stage companies. Prior to starting Luxor, Janice was a founding partner of Adaptive Path and served as a company's first CEO. Sarah Milstein is CEO and co-founder with Eric Reese of Lean Startup Productions, the media company behind this webcast and behind the Lean Startup Conference, which Sarah and Eric co-host. A few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before asking the question. Our speakers will answer questions in the second half of the webcast. This is a one-hour program, and the recording will be available a few days after this live webcast. Take it away, Sarah. All right, Melissa, thanks so much. Um, Janice, welcome. I'd like to dive right in with a basic definition of Lean Startup. How would you describe it? Um, hi, Sarah. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I would say that the most important thing that defines Lean Startup is that it's an approach, not a rigid methodology, but an approach. And it's an approach for creating companies and new products um, in a situation of extreme uncertainty. And that extreme uncertainty is really the key um, kind of indicator that allows us to choose Lean Startup as the approach you want to take. And what do we mean by extreme uncertainty? And it turns out that that's uh, contextually relevant. So um, what is extreme uncertainty for me might not be extreme uncertainty for you. So for instance, if Procter & Gamble is releasing a new laundry detergent, probably not extreme uncertainty. They know everything about laundry detergent. They ship a lot of that stuff, right? So they know the customers, they know the challenges and the products and the distribution channels. But if I were to start a laundry detergent business, that would be very uncertain for me. So I would have to take a more experimental approach in order to reduce the risk. And that's really what I believe Lean Startup is all about, is applying sort of scientific method um, in order to learn sequentially what um, I need to know in order to find the right path to get my product or company to market. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so when we talk about risk, what we really mean is operating in a condition of extreme uncertainty, what you don't know. Right. And when you don't know very much, it's pretty easy to deceive yourself um, in the question of what should we build. And that's, you know, we, we talk a lot about Lean Startup being, um, helping us answer that question, what should we build? Right. Right. And that, you know, it's, um, it's easy to build something that you can build without a sense of whether people will buy it or use it. That's right. Startup methods help us answer that question and reduce the risk that we'll build something that nobody that wants. Nobody wants. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I have seen, you know, you, you mentioned this idea that it's sort of helping us get out of our own um, delusion. Um, we as humans are really, really good at thinking of ideas. And 
getting really excited about them and we can tell ourselves a great story about how like how awesome that thing would be but you know the truth is that we have to and this is this is a way to step away from that enthusiasm in a measured um, reliable way to help us understand whether or not all of that instinct which is great and wonderful and important but whether our instincts are actually taking us down a path that will lead to success. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, um, I think the very simplest way to describe that is that Lean Startup helps you get more information to back up your instincts or find right. out that they weren't right on target. Right. I, you know, the, the trick about information, though, is that if we all start with the idea, like, I need to get information, it can take us back to the olden days where we looked at market research as the panacea. Um, you know, there's a Jupiter report that says that we ought to do this and that the market size in 2020 is going to be that. And the truth is that all of those predictions are, you know, they're, they're just guesses. And what we need with Lean Startup and one of the things that really codifies Lean Startup is getting real product into the hands of real customers to learn for real rather than just someone using someone else's predictions as information to give us a false positive or even a false negative about whether or not a certain idea has merit. Yeah, right. The, the information has to be um, what we would call validated, right? Or right. Um, right. proven out, not right. random. <laughs> uh, we'll talk a little bit more about validation in a little bit. Um, but with that basic idea that we're, that when we're building something new, there's a lot of risk because we don't know about our customers and we're trying to reduce that risk by getting better information in to help us decide what we should build. That's our kind of baseline. Yeah. Let's spend just a minute on why we would need that at all. Like, you know, it sounds so uh, obvious in a way. Well, why bother to create a whole kind of approach around that? Um, well, it, it's, it's the sort of thing that seems obvious in retrospect. Um, one of my favorite Lean Startup practitioners is a gentleman named Todd Park. He's the until recently, he was the CTO of the United States of America, like the whole country. And um, he says that when he first encountered um, Lean Startup as a set of ideas, um, it was as if Eric Reese had x-rayed his body and seen all the broken bones from his two startups, which were incredibly successful. Like, he took two companies public, both of them valued well over a billion dollars. Like, he really knows, like, he is what we would consider to be a hero, a victory story, right, in the, in the startup space. And yet, you know, he lived all of these pains. And um, it's like this, this concept is so obvious in retrospect, but when you're going through it in, in real time, when you're going through it for the first time, um, it's, it's really not obvious. There are many, many ways to live in denial as a startup founder. So, yeah, getting getting a real product into the hands of real customers in the real world is is the sort of thing that is deceptively hard to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Many of us have had that experience. I would say, too, that you know the, the new product development process that most of us learn is the idea that you've kind of got like a vision for something, and that you might be at a standalone startup at a very young company, um, you could be in new product development, as you said, at Procter & Gamble at a very big company. If you're building right. something new, the thing that we've all learned is you've got a vision for it, you're going to build it, you're going to market it, and people will buy it. Right. And so many of us have had the experience of working on projects, whether it was a software project or a very big um, physical item or a service that we were 
designed for many people that nobody bought. You know, you build it and right. nobody came. And you might have spent months or years, thousands or millions of dollars, and didn't learn until the very end when you launched the thing that nobody was interested or not enough people to justify that investment. So the, the, one of the ideas of Lean Startup is to help us um, shortcut that right. and start getting information in much earlier about right. who wants, whether anybody wants, and who would want what you're building, or how you can build something that meets your vision and customer needs at the same time that you might not have realized at the outset. Absolutely. Well, and this applies not just to these huge projects and huge companies. It, you know, what to Procter and Gamble or to the United States government might seem like a gigantic risk. You know, that is gigantic. But um, when you're talking about a small business, um, the risk is just as great because it's someone's livelihood. So most small businesses are started to put food on the table. And you know, when we think about what a startup is in Silicon Valley, it's very common to think about this like, I'm going to get venture capital and we're going to go to the top and we're going to like go public and it's going to be a billion dollar you know, exit to Facebook, at whatever, right? So, but the truth is that even when you're building a smaller company, the situation of extreme uncertainty can indicate that you know lean startup is a good way to go. And I actually have one example, and, and this is an interesting case because it's someone who I met because they came through our Luxor program. Um, he was one of the founders of a company called Diaspora, which was the biggest Kickstarter, it was the first Kickstarter campaign to get like a quarter million dollars in funding. And um, they worked really hard on what they thought was going to be a Facebook killer, and they got lots and lots of press, and someone's writing a book about them and all of this. And that company never did it, like, it didn't go anywhere. There were many problems with it. Um, and the founder of that, one of the four guys that started that company, is now doing what amounts to a small business. They employ six people. Um, the company's called BackerKit, and what they do is fulfillment for people doing Kickstarter campaigns. Um, so all of those t-shirts that you get and whatnot. And he used a lean startup approach. And he has no real, as far as I know, no aspirations to make it a gigantic company to raise a bunch of money. He just wants to have a really nice life. So he, you know, he employs six people. Um, he does experiments. They do A-B testing. You know, all of these ideas of, you know, MVPs and pivots and all of this jargon that we hear He's employing those techniques to mitigate the risk and to get real in his own mind about whether there's market acceptance for products that he's bringing to market. And it turns out there is, and they're doing really well. And Lean Startup has been helping them to grow their company and um, to know whether the investments they're making in hiring new people and adding capacity and that sort of thing are actually helping or, you know, whether it's not helping. And, and he's learning, you know, this effort worked great, this one did not, you know, this experiment was a success, um, this experiment told us that we needed to go another direction. Right, right. I mean, that's an excellent, there was somebody in the, the chat room just asking if there are any case studies of small businesses using Lean Startup, and that's a perfect example. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, it's also used very large scale in, like, the U.S. government. Yeah. Um, so let's get a little um, deeper in here. Uh, just do a, let's have a quick discussion of the, or description rather, of the general process. Can you walk us through that? Sure, sure. So, you know, it, it's hard to say that there's a process because really you need to understand all the different kind of, you need to be able to recognize the moments where a certain technique or tool will be helpful. Um, so the concept, you know, we have a cycle diagram that we talk about of build, measure, learn. 
And um, I come from the design world um, long, long ago in my previous life. Um, and we talked about think, make, check. And it's the same process. The idea is that whether you start with think or you start with build, what you want is to like get to a thing that you can actually put into someone's hands. And that thing can and probably should be very, very small. And, and so build, measure, learn means that you make a thing, you put it onto the real world, you see what happens with it for real, and then you use that insight to inform the next thing that you're going to make, and you do that over and over. And there's one exception to that where sometimes you have to kind of go backwards to go forwards. You have to go like, what do I want to learn? What could I, how would I measure that? And what do I need to build in order to get that learning? So you start with the learn part and you set an objective. And often we talk about that as an experiment and a hypothesis. So, you know, what do I need to learn? I formulate that as a hypothesis. I figure out how I might learn that, and then I build that thing and see what happens. And that gives me the next piece of information so that then I can take the next step forward. Okay, so can, let's get an example. Going. Okay. What's, um, Great. Um, that we might be trying to build around. Yeah. Okay, so I had a company called 100 Plus. It was a venture-funded startup that came through Luxor. And they had this huge aspiration. So the first thing that we always did is say, like, okay, why are you doing this company? What is that big vision? What's your delusion bubble, right? What bubble are you living in that makes you willing to take this enormous risk of starting a company? And their big aggressive goal was um, to make the American people healthier by reducing smoking and increasing weight loss, right? That's, that is an untestable you know, aspiration. So we needed to break it down. So what they did is they did this experiment. They decided that the first thing they needed to do was find out whether they could get people to enter data into their mobile phones about behaviors that we all consider to be negative, like smoking, like drinking, like eating junk food, right? Could they inspire people to do that? So that was their big behavioral hypothesis that they felt if they couldn't even get that done, they didn't have a chance of making this company happen. So they did a five-week experiment. They actually built an application and took it to South by Southwest a few years ago. Um, and the application was a tiny, tiny version of their big vision. It used humor to get people to enter how much they had had to drink the night before. So if you ever go to South by Southwest, whether it's for music or interactive or whatever, it is a big drunken party. There are parties every night. People drink a lot. And they got 6,000 people to enter data about their drinking by giving them humor back, right? So it's like, I had 10 drinks last night. Well, it would you would have to box a kangaroo for two hours to burn off the calories you consumed, right? And so they did that experiment. They got people to enter data. They did it using humor. These were two of their big hypotheses. One was that humor would work, and two, was that they could get people to enter data on their mobile phones about negative behaviors. So that's a way, and they did that in five weeks um, with a core team of like four people. And so for them, they have this huge goal that they would need to raise millions of dollars of funding, but they were able to do this scaled-down test. That actually is a pretty big experiment, um, but it, it shows how you can kind of smallify the problem, really break the problem down, get something into people's hands, and then really learn from it. 
Do you know what their hypothesis was going into South by how many people they thought they would get? Uh, so actually a quantitative target. Um, they beat their quantitative target. They, they, there was another wrinkle here. There's another layer to this experiment, what they wanted to see. So they were able to check the box. Yes, we can get people to um, enter this data. Yes, they're using humor to do it. So they had a hypothesis. It was less than 6,000. They had a hypothesis like 3,000, and so they doubled it. So that sounds like awesome. The next thing, though, their engine of growth um, is virality, and they were not able to get people to share that data. So they had one positive um, check mark and one negative check mark. Um, so yes, people will do it, but no, they won't share it. And ultimately, the sharing was what limited the capacity of the company to grow. Okay, interesting. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was looking for quantitative in part because we do have um, an idea about experiment design. Right. And when you're running an experiment, um, one of the things that's really easy to do is say, here, we're going to set this up because we have an idea, we have a, a theory or a hypothesis. Um, we think that when we launch this feature, customers are going to behave in a certain way. Um, and we're going to put it out there and see what happens. Right. And pretty consistently, if you don't have a hard line for what you really think and there's not a quantitative sense of what's going to happen, it's very hard to learn because you right. can't fail or succeed if you're just right. seeing what happens. Right. And so um, drawing a line in the sand, that's why I was asking about that particular. Yeah. But let's go for another example. How about? Well, actually, let me, let me say a little bit about that drawing a line in the sand. Um, yeah. You know, we've coached like 50 companies in a really deep way um, through this kind of lean startup cycles um, process. And we find that that it can be a real stumper. You know, how will I know if it's any good? Well, you don't, right? But what we started to get people to do in designing their experiments was to, to play out if we got this number. If we say we got 3,000 people to download this app and use it, um, how does that plug into our business model? And does that does that business model make sense? And what would we need to do? So sometimes it feels more comfortable to do one experiment as a baseline and then run it a second time as, um, as a, we call it an intervention. If I do this change, can I change that number? And so we begin to measure numbers over time. Um, and here we get to one of the other ideas about um, about uh, metrics, what are good metrics versus not good metrics. And a good metric is always one that you can deliberately change through some intervention, either in the product or the marketing or, or through some action that you do. You can make that number go up and you can compare it was like this before and it's like this now and it'll be like this again. So that as you get better at doing your experiments and as you get better at predicting, that that sense of numeracy, that sense of like, here's what it should be, gets better. And starting Lean Startup is, is sometimes harder than living it, right? So measuring the first time feels impossible. Measuring the second time feels a lot easier. Measuring the third time, it feels like a habit. So that's, it's really important to um, commit to this as a way of life rather than to do it once. Mm -hmm. Right. People sometimes call that an iterative process. That's right. It just means like lather, rinse, repeat. You're going to take the information you just got right. and rebuild based on what you just learned and you keep that's doing that. Um, right. Continuous learning. That's right. Uh, I do want to just give a quick example 
on the quantitative side um, and why that's useful. And then we'll um, we'll talk a little more. People are asking some questions about some of the terms. So we'll talk okay. about MVPs and pivots and some of that fancy stuff. Um, but um, just a quick example um, in terms of thinking about um, an assumption you might have and a hypothesis you might build against it. So last year, we ran a new conference called Office Optional. It was an in-person conference, um, but before, we, before it ran, people started asking us if we were going to sell tickets for the live stream. And um, we thought, yeah, we'll sell tickets for the live stream. And based on some other um, online events that we had done, we, we thought we would sell about 20 tickets. And we put them online on, uh, for sale with that as our baseline. That was kind of our like you know pass fail measure. And we wound up selling 120 tickets. Now 120 is not a huge number, and the revenue associated with it was in the you know tens of thousands of dollars. Not big numbers here, but it was a very big signal to us that we needed to rethink our video strategy. And if we had just said, well, let's put them online and see what happens. Let's put them for sale. 10 would have looked the same as 20, would have looked the same as 120. Zero would have looked the same. We wouldn't have gotten any real information. We would have gotten whatever money we got. Right. But what was much more valuable to us in this case was the information that we right. got. Right. So sometimes it's something very simple that you're going to try. We're having um, a, a pretty solid hypothesis about what you think is going to happen will make a difference. And then speaking to your the iterative process, we learned from that, and we're now going to sell tickets for... Um, live stream tickets for some upcoming events um, with a slightly different um, approach because we know more about what people want. So I love this example because it really re it, it reveals that there are a couple of kinds of learning. Sometimes you can learn about the market, but sometimes you can learn about yourself and your own preconceived notions. So what you said is that it really causes us to rethink our video strategy and so that first hypothesis is really about revealing our own assumptions and that first quantitative hypothesis. I believe that if we put live stream um, out there, we will sell, you know, 10 or what have you. Right? That's you're articulating your own assumption, and and it it it's like you're drawing a picture of what you think truth is, and you're learning that your picture of truth needs to shift. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes yeah, you're learning yeah, about the exactly right. yeah, you're learning about the product or you're learning about the market, but you're also learning about yourself, and that's really important um, to consider as entrepreneurs using a lean startup method. Yeah, absolutely. It is continuous learning, which is both what's external and yourself, what you know and how you think about things. Um, right. So I do want to know we're getting lots of questions, and we're yeah. going to address questions of some of the specific questions. In just a bit, I do want to just hit on some of the key terms yeah. um, because there's a lot of mystique around these, um, <laughs> yeah. and we want to uh, sort of uh, demystify some of it. Yeah. So let's just let's start with validation and, and validated learning, which we referred to earlier. Yes. Yeah, so validated learning, to my mind, is um, quantitative, ideally, evidence, or a qualitative indicator in some cases. Um, ideally quantitative evidence that your hypothesis is accurate. That's what we mean by validated learning. So that means that 
unvalidated learning, you have to structure your thoughts as hypotheses. You have to design an experiment around them, and you have to then observe the outcome of that experiment. So it really is about putting structure around this kind of Wild West shoot from the hip thing that entrepreneurs can do. Um, so validated learning means we had this thought, we designed a way to see whether that thought is accurate, and we measured and observed the outcome. That's validated learning. Right on. It's rigorous. It is rigorous, and that's deliberate. It is deliberately rigorous. We are choosing together to structure our thinking and to follow a rational evidence-based path. <laughs> you know, one of the things that um, Eric sometimes suggests, um, Eric Rees, the author of The Lean Startup and co-host of the Lean Startup Conference, is that if your um, experiments and your learning is not a little bit boring, then you're doing it wrong. Like, it's, <laughs> it's to be very structured. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, all right, so let's talk about customer development. Okay, so customer development is really interesting because folks from a lot of other disciplines feel like they invented this themselves, and the truth is that we all did. Um, there's some convergent evolution happening here. So um, customer development is a process by which we go out into the world seek out people who have the behavioral profile or the, the, the profile of the, the kind of customer we think would like or use the, the product that we're thinking of. And instead of validating whether they want that product, what we do is we learn about them. What do they do? Why do they do it? Um, what problem do they have? How are they solving that problem now? What needs do they have? How would we delight them? Right. So we learn about, we set aside our product assumptions for a while, and we simply open our minds and learn about them, right? So this matches how consultative selling works, this matches how user experience research works, this matches ethnography. So there are a lot of analogs to this process. Um, customer development has the added component of actually translating that um, sort of ethnographic insight. Um, toward a market outcome. So you, customer development actually does also add the business aspect rather than simply what is the user-centered needs, right? So it's not just design thinking, it's not just empathy, it's design thinking and empathy applied to a business problem and validating whether or not there's a market for this um, business. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Um, so let's keep moving. I, I want to weigh in, but I also want to okay. get to all these questions. I know, questions. I know, so I know. <laughs> two more things we're going to define. Let's define MVPs and then pivots, and then we'll start getting into questions. So MVPs, obviously, a biggie, and people um, yeah. are always really wondering, what are they and how do we use them? So the first thing to know about an MVP, uh, MVP stands for the words minimum viable product, and what's important in practicing an MVP-type approach is that you think about ways to smallify the problem. So if I want to have a wedding cake in August and I have $40 and four hours on Saturday, I'm not going to go mix up a bunch of, you know, a big massive cake batter. Instead, I'm going to go make a cupcake. And a cupcake is not a cupcake unless it's frosted. And the best cupcake is pretty, right? So a cupcake is a teeny tiny version of the much larger, more complicated vision of the wedding cake, right? So um, really think cupcake, not wedding cake for MVPs. Um, and, you know, one of my colleagues, a guy named Tristan Cromer, who runs Lean Startup Circle, he says a lemon is 
MVP for Lemonade. And what he means there is that is that you have to actually deliver on the value proposition. Like say you want to have a lemonade empire where you have frozen lemonade in the freezer cupboard of every Whole Foods in the nation, right? You don't start by making, you know, like it's by getting a whole box of lemons. You start by making one good pitcher of lemonade, right? So it's um, so an MVP is not just a terrible version of the product. It is not a version that has no user experience. It's not a version that has, it's not a cupcake without frosting, and it's not a vat of cake batter. It's a fully realized, fully delightful, tiny, tiny version of that suggests a much larger opportunity. Right. So, you know, one of the questions that we're getting, and a common one, is how do you create an MVP for something that's very complex? And you know, one way to think about that, and there's also questions, of course, about B2B. So yeah. one example, one way we might think about that is um, an MVP is designed in any particular MVP is designed to test a specific assumption you have about the product. That's right. So if the thing that you are selling is a new gas turbine and it costs millions of dollars to build and there are only you know, four potential customers on the planet, but you want to know if your existing channel partners will sell it. You don't have to will sell a new one. You don't have to build it to find out. The MVP to test the assumption that your existing channel partners will sell it for you could be a brochure. That's right. That's right. It's a very specific um, and, and limited thing that lets you figure out the answer to a single question. And then you move on from there. That's right. And it's really important. Um, to think creatively about ways to smallify. And this word has been really helpful for a lot of our clients, that, that, that smallification can happen across any number of dimensions, right? It can you, can, you have to look at all of the complexities and think about how you might eliminate each one of those complexities to learn that specific thing. So sometimes um, a lot of the, the companies that we've seen lately are have some geographic dimension. Well, you can start in a, in a city, or you could start in one neighborhood. Or we had one startup that started on one block in the mission. Um, they wanted to approach a Latino market, and so they they went to, and they were a very complex company because it was about payment systems and you know um, payment options for non-English speaking um, Latino Americans, right? And and so they were able to really they we they went by hand and talked to shop owners and asked about a particular um, set of questions around how people pay and and they really got very specific and by limiting it to that one geography they learned a lot about what would be difficult um, technically and what would be difficult sociologically mm -hmm. um, and and they were able to make a lot of progress that way yeah yeah that's a great example um, we are getting lots of questions for more examples. Um, yeah. So let's just dive in on MVPs a little bit. We can come back I think, to pivot um, later. Um, so one of the things, one of the things that we, we get asked a lot are about creating MVPs for um, for hardware or for physical goods. And right. you know, the, the brochure for the gas turbine is one example. But let's talk a little bit about some other examples and how a prototype is different from an MVP. Um, okay, so a hardware example. Um, I, 
it is a prototype is different from an MVP because there's no intention that it's actually going to have a response from a real customer, right? You can show a prototype in a lab environment. You can show a prototype on the street. Um, but what you really want is some sort of um, evidence of actual customer response. So one example of how physical products are getting MVP'd is that they're, um, particularly on the consumer goods side, is that they're getting Kickstarter videos. And what, what, what makes that an MVP and a valid experiment is that you're actually asking people to get out their wallets. The hardest thing to do is to get someone to pull out their wallet and to pre-buy the thing, right? And so that's real evidence um, that, that the consumer is interested in that product. Right? So there's a hydroponics company um, that did really awesome stuff with kitchen gardens and they launched it all on Kickstarter and it was successful beyond their wildest dreams. They had no idea how to fulfill it, you know, and now that is, um, th those products are being distributed in um, mass market retailers like Target. Um, another uh, company that I want to go to as an example that I think is lovely, really lovely, is Quirky. Are you familiar with Quirky? Yeah, one you explained to everybody what it is. Yeah, so Quirky, um, it is like household consumer goods, pretty much anything that can be made out of molded plastic. And they have the community create, like you or I could submit a sketch for a concept that says, you know, I think that we should have a butter keeper that works like this. And we sketch it out on a napkin and we can submit it. And then their community helps to price it. They help to design it. Um, and by having community participation, they're actually getting real evidence of real consumers, and then you can buy it, and then that designer um, makes the money. So I feel like this is an implementation of Lean Startup to the concept of physical product development. So you're getting real people to respond to the real products as they're being developed, and um, and you're actually getting market acceptance information in real time during the development of the product. Yeah, I think that does a nice job too of highlighting a sort of what I think of as the key difference between a prototype and an MVP, which is that a prototype is designed to validate whether the product works. Is this something that people can get their hands on and use? But an MVP is designed to validate whether it has value to potential customers. So desirability, uh, this is something that's being debated right now in the user experience community, actually. Um, the, the question of can you get desirability information from prototype versus usability information, right? So um, one of the disciplines that we have is do people want it? And the other is can people use it? And it's important to have both, <laughs> like both kinds of information. And there are prototype environments where you can get desirability information, but it's much harder. And it's um, usually you have to actually make a, 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 you can still call it a prototype, but it actually has to be pretty closely resembling the actual shippable product. So that's pretty far along in the design process of the physical product. Yeah, so one question that we've had here today, and this comes up pretty often, is if a prototype is designed to say, can people use it, and the MVP is, do they want it? If you run an MVP and they say they don't want it, how do you know it, the, that the problem is not that they couldn't use it? Well, I, I'm, we're not. So one of the myths about Lean Startup is that it's a shortcut. Mm -hmm. 
And um, I, we need to put that to bed right now. Lean startup actually is harder. To, it, it's harder to make what you perceive as progress by doing lean startup because you get signals like this. And, and it forces you to ask and answer the hardest questions first rather than proceeding down a primrose path um, to, of, of false positives. Right? So what you're asking is a very hard, hard problem. And it takes smart people to figure that out. And the way that you figure it out is that you have to listen very carefully as people talk. This is why quantitative and qualitative have to work together. Quantitative tells you what is happening. Qualitative research, meaning listening to people, that's what tells you why. So you can um, put a product out there. And here, I would love to use an example from Eric Reese's past um, that was shared to me by his head of design. Um, the, uh, when they were doing their, their very first company, the company that kind of made Eric's um, ideas come together, uh, it was a virtual goods company. It was a, it's a like, fantasy kind of environment where people have avatars. And um, they, at one point, launched this product into the community, um, and it was pets. And the idea was that the pet themselves would be the thing that would be interesting, and, and, but you had to feed them a sort of Tamagotchi style. And um, people would buy the pets, and so it was successful from that point of view. But then the pets would die because nobody actually wanted to like bother with the care and feeding. And so all of your customers had all of these um, dead pets, which is pretty funny when you think about it. Um, in a sort of grim kind of way. <laughs> and so they went, you know, oh, well, that didn't work. Okay, so what have we learned here? Well, we learned that people love pets, but we learned that people can't or don't use them in the way that we thought they would. And so they came up with another hypothesis, and they went um, into the drawing room, and they looked at what do we know about our customers already. So this is where the qualitative part came in. They had to look at what do people already do? What are the behaviors that they do? What are the motivations? What is it that seems to be giving joy? Right? So they took the quantitative. Okay, here's what we know quantitatively. And then they asked the question, why? And the answer was, people in our community love to embellish. They love to adorn. They love to be creative. And so, in, so they relaunched pets. They took a long time to relaunch pets because they, they had a pretty solid idea at this point. Um, several months later, they relaunched pets, only instead of buying the pets um, and then having to take care of them, you bought the pets and then you could embellish them. You could give them, you know, different colors, you could dress them up, you could, you know, customize them, give them big long tails, whatever. And so it became this um, play environment that was an extension of what the users really wanted and needed. So in order to imagine the new solution, you have to really get inside the heads, and this is where the, the, question, uh, the answer to your question comes in. You really have to get inside the heads of your customers and understand what they need, what they love, what motivates them, what delights them, and use that as the jumping off point for your next concept. And it turned out that this relaunch of pets was wildly successful and um, made everybody super happy and was, you know, happy. Happy land. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and that's, that's great. And when I uh, when I asked the question, I wrote down my own note. The answer to when you're getting data that seems kind of um, inconsistent or hazy is to marry the quantitative and the qualitative. And when we yeah. say quantitative, we mean something that you're measuring, 
like the number numerically right through um, the number of people who have purchased uh, the number of people who have told you that they would buy um, and the quantitative the qualitative is the conversations that you have with people customer interviews and those might be on the phone they might be in person they might be over Skype you might be bringing people into your offices to use your product um, in person and have conversations with them but that's a, right. that's the difference between the quantitative and qualitative and they really go together to help you get a much richer picture of what's going on and why. Right, right. It's um, that why piece that's so important. Yeah, and easy to, to skip. To forget, right. Yeah. So let's um, give a couple more examples on MVPs. Um, is somebody asking how to create an MVP for a space, like a co-working space or a restaurant that doesn't exist yet? Now, they didn't specify what the question is they're trying to answer with the MVP. Right. Right. Well, and that's the thing. So in order to do an MVP of a physical space, you would need to understand what it is that you want to learn. Um, so perhaps the question is about how do people flow in a space, or um, if I wanted to create a certain environment. There's, so so let's, let's take a restaurant. A restaurant is not an unknown space. So presume I'm going to presume if they're interested in applying Lean Startup to a restaurant, it means that they have some concept that is beyond you have a maitre d' who stands at the front, a host, and they direct people to a table, and those tables are two tops, four tops, or six tops, right? So there's a pattern that exists there, and if we're going to apply MVP, or um, if we're going to apply Lean Startup, that means that we have some hypothesis. We want to do something that's experimental and risky. So let's take the example that they want to experiment with flow, and flow is about how people move through the space, how people can interact with one another, um, and maybe that's how the servers interact, maybe it's how the, how the sommelier or the, you know, whatever um, uh, servers interact. So what you can do, so you could MVP that in a number of ways. Um, if it were me, I might start experimenting with flow at dinner parties, right? I might say, I'm going to host a dinner party, and I'm going to experiment with a couple of things. And so I host a dinner party for 20 people, and I create my hypothesis around how the servers are going to flow with the customers and um, and we'll see if that works. And then perhaps I would go to a meetup and I would direct flow around meetup. So I would find ways to simulate the environment and I would learn from how real people interact in those real situations. Um, you can buy out an existing restaurant for a night and you can arrange the tables however you want, right? Like these are these are things that you can do that that simplify the complexities. So the complexities of starting a restaurant. We've all watched Restaurant Wars probably on um, the Food Network show, right? There's <laughs> it's two teams create a restaurant overnight. Anyway, it's on Top Chef, regardless. Um, and and that's a really complex situation with many many things that can go wrong. So what you need to do is simplify that set of complexities, eliminate all of the variables except the one that you want to learn about that night, right? So tonight I want to learn about flow. Tomorrow night I'm going to learn about um, servers. The next night I'm going to learn about menu, right? And so you, you simplify the problem set and then you find places where you can implement your ideas um, in a, a structured environment that isolates that variable so that you can learn. Yeah, so I would take this one in a different direction because maybe the thing that you're trying to learn is whether the food idea that you have is going to take off. And again, you can do right. things that you just suggested. You can buy out a restaurant for the night and try it. 
but you know, sort of a classic way that people do this um, is to, you know, you, you start cooking for your friends and family and your neighbors, and you bump up to a food truck, and you're running out of a food truck, and the food truck becomes a way that you're testing the, the um, market for the particular thing you want to create. That's sure. very separate from the space sure. and those kinds of questions. We don't know in this case what the person was asking, but um, it's a good example that an MVP, we, there isn't really like an MVP for a restaurant because an MVP is designed to test a question you have. So what's the question about the restaurant or the co-working space? Right. And then how does the MVP help you answer that? Right. Um, all right, so we've got plenty more questions here. Um, let's just take a little bit of a, a jump over here and take a step back, actually. Somebody asked, how do you build a, a hypothesis? What's the best practice for that? Oh, that's if, interesting. Yeah. Um, so we have a way that we do it. Um, and uh, I like to say that an experiment has three parts. The hypothesis, the instrument, the thing you're going to do, and then the measurable outcome, right? The indicator, uh, and that hypothesis being the first thing, we suggest that people start with the words "we believe that," dot dot dot, and because because when you start with that, it predisposes you to a couple of things that are really important. One is um, you're making a positive assertion. Um, we believe that. Korean tacos are a good idea. We believe that people will love Korean tacos. So in there you have people, and we can probably get more specific about that. So we believe that 25-year-old tech guys at lunchtime will enjoy a Korean taco. Okay? So that's a very specific and measurable thing. Um, and it can get even more specific. So we believe that um, 25-year-old tech guys in South Park will enjoy <laughs> Korean tacos at lunchtime. Okay, so you put a person in a context with the thing, the testable thing, the idea. So Korean tacos being the testable thing here. So the person is, a, we, we like to have personas, so it's a hypothesis about a person, which we can validate separately. You have the person and you have the, the, the thing, but it's phrased as a positive assertion, and it must be quantitatively verifiable. You must be able to say, we gave it to 50 people. Of those, um, 27 walked away, um, 5 loved it, all the rest didn't like it. That's a clear outcome, and that is a successful experiment. So one of the things that I want to emphasize here is that a, a successful experiment is not one that validates your assumption. A successful experiment is one that delivers a clear outcome. The only failed experiment is one where you go like, meh, I don't really know what it means. Yeah, right? so yeah. You want to design your experiments and therefore you want to design your hypotheses such that you will know very clearly whether, um, whether it is a positive or a negative uh, outcome on your hypothesis. Mm -hmm. right. So you can't say, yeah, you can't say, do people like it? Right. You, you really should say, do people buy it? Right. I think that that's a great, um, a great phrasing. That a failed experiment is one where you didn't learn. Yeah. So you have to structure the hypothesis, the thing that you are testing, in a way that whatever comes back 
you will have a sense of what to do next. Yeah, and you know, I've actually found that people can get really wishy-washy about the word learn, mm. right? Mm. So, so we even try to get like, what does learning mean? And this gets back to your like setting a goal, setting a, a an objective, a quantitative objective. Um, if it is above this quantitative objective, then that means X. And if it's below that quantitative objective, it means Y. The more we can get clear about those things before we run the experiment, the more we will have new insights for going forward. Right, right. All right, so let's talk about a couple things here. We're getting a lot of questions about two areas. Um, doing customer development and customer ID for B2B companies. Um, a couple of people have asked in particular about small and medium-sized enterprise B2B. Um, and we've also had some questions about big vision kinds of projects like life sciences where the, the product cycles can be a decade or more. Right. So let's take those one at a time and, and talk about how we think about customer development and experimentation in those contexts. Let's talk about the B2B side first. Sure. Um, so uh, customer development, and I'm sorry, what was the second thing? Um, uh, customer, identifying customers and then doing customer development and experimentation. And getting validation. Okay. Um, so in B2B, uh, it is important that you, it, it is even more important that you get very skilled at um, uh, listening to people uh, and that you get very skilled at identifying what piece you want to learn of the puzzle. So I think that with B2B, um, some of the challenges that I've heard with B2B are that um, you can't sell a thing because it's a big complex system and it's a very centralized sales funnel and they're going to make a big buy all at once, right? So when you have, it's not a consumer application where you have a lot of little purchases and you can get a lot of little responses. Um, so there are several ways that I've seen this tackled successfully. One way is that by getting really clear on which part um, you think is the riskiest assumption. So this, step one, what are all the assumptions? List them. Step two, choose the riskiest assumption that if this is not true, it will kill my company. I will have no future. Okay, so that's where you start. You get really, really, really specific with that. And then you say, okay, this is the riskiest assumption. So for instance, um, I am going to create a single sign-on service um, for all of the, to unify all of the Google and other cloud-type services Google, Expensify, TripIt, whatever, all the expensive, all that kind of enterprise-y, um, but not like SAP-level enterprise, all the small and mid-sized businesses, right? That actually is the, a, the profile of a company that I worked with five years ago called Okta. Okay, so what is single sign-on look like for that? What are the problems that we need to look like? What, what are the problems that those people have? So first part, customer development. You have to figure out who is the user buyer, meaning the end user within the company of that product? Well, it's an IT guy or gal, right? Then you have to say, who is the financial buyer? Who's the one who's going to be the, the you know, check writer? So this is what that centralized B2B thing looks like, is that there are end users and then there's the buyer. And, okay, so great. That's the first thing. Now let's find out what problem does this person have? We go by talking to them and listening to them. And then what problem does this person have? And we go and talk to them and listen to them. And then we create a hypothesis and we say, 
if we solve this problem for this person and this problem for this person in a very small way, can we um, get them to sign on? Or can we get them to, to make a buy? And then we deliver that. Okay, so for instance, this is not, um, I, I don't want to represent that this is how Okta proceeded, so let's pretend it's a fake company. Okay. Um, but it, this draws lessons from many of my clients. On the one hand, you say the end user, the IT person, has a problem managing passwords and lists. So I have a list of people, maybe I have 4,000 people in my mid-size company. Right? 4,000 people is a lot of passwords to manage. And one of the hardest problems that they have is managing the list of people. So we could create a hypothesis of a product that just addressed the list management. Right? And then we go to the financial buyer. We say, if we solve this problem, what value would that deliver to your company? Right? That's a classic sales question. If I solve this problem, what value would it deliver? Right? And then we think about whether or not even solving that most basic layer of the problem would have value. And you see whether people will buy that or not. And then you add on. So you start with this, this thing, and then you do this thing, and then you do this thing, and then you do this thing. Um, there's a, there's a, an image that I like to draw, and it, it's um, scope and fidelity. And if you have scope on one axis and fidelity on the other, meaning feature richness, right? Um, then over then time, right? Over time, you get you increase in scope and you increase in fidelity, and you do that sequentially. And so you can take your product to market in that kind of a way, right? So you get five customers. So one of the questions is about market validation. So what is? Um, I often say, well, how? how many customers do I need to have for my B2B product in order to say that I've got traction? And the, in, the, the answer that I give is somewhat arbitrary, but it seems to be a good rule of thumb, and that is that if you can get 10 B2B customers signed on to particularly your enterprise software, right, which is where I have the most experience, if you can get 10 customers to sign into your enterprise software program and grow with you over a course of a year or two, you're going to be really in good shape really in good shape because you will learn a lot, you will encounter all of the hard problems that are there guaranteed, you will tackle them together as partners, and you will enlist them as not just beta testers, which is kind of what we often do, is like, here's beta testing, and I'm going to make the whole product, and it's going to be a really crappy version of the whole product. And really, if you think about MVP again, it's targeted towards solving a specific problem and, and a specific learning objective. And it's a fully realized version of that very targeted thing, right? Then you're getting that like sequential approximations of goodness by increasing scope and increasing fidelity incrementally over time. Yeah. Okay, great. So look, we have just a few more minutes, just under five minutes. And there's a couple things I want to hit. I do want to just let's spend 30 seconds on that question about life sciences and other yes. big picture. Questions, and then we can talk a little bit about some misconceptions because people have asked about that as well. Yeah, so life sciences is definitely a challenge, and what I what I uh, tell my life sciences clients is that it's exactly the same process. You just have to be willing to be flexible on the time scale, right? Your complexities are still complexities. We're just actually when they get it, when they realize that they have permission to say it's not going to be a two-day experiment, it's going to be a two-year experiment. Like two years is still a lot shorter than ten years, right? Okay. The thing about Lean Startup is that it is exactly the methodology they're already comfortable with because it is simply the scientific method. 
but you're applying the scientific method to a different set of problems. So what you need to do first is, you know, do that assumptions exercise where you dump out all your assumptions and then you stack rank them according to risk and then you choose the top one and then you break that down into something that is actually testable, experimentable, MVPable. Yeah. So it's the same process, it's the same thought process. Life sciences people are actually quite good at this. You just have to be more flexible about the time scale. Yeah, and that's true um, even if you're not in life sciences, but you're dealing with something with a long, uh, long right. cycle. Um, and sometimes if you're in, say, education and there's a year-long cycle, that's right. um, there might be pieces that you can break down, which is true in any situation, where you can look at a much shorter time frame and you can make changes and have an effect over a couple of years, but you can learn in much shorter increments. Um, all right, so I do want to hit this question about misconceptions because it's something that a couple of people have asked and it's something that you wanted to talk about um, when we discussed what are some of the themes we want to hit on. So let's just talk about a couple of the big misconceptions about Lean Startup um, and misinterpretations. Uh, a couple of um, misconceptions. My favorite one is that Lean Startup has something to do with how much money you spend. Lean Startup has absolutely nothing to do with whether you spend a lot of money. Lean Startup is all about efficiency. The word lean comes from um, lean manufacturing, just-in-time manufacturing, which is about reducing waste. So this uh, application of scientific method is about de-risking the business as quickly as possible so that you're wasting as little effort as possible. So you want to spend as much as little time failing as you possibly can, and as little money failing as you possibly can, so that you have another attempt available. Right? We talk about shots on goal. I want to have more shots on goal before I run out of time and money. Okay? So a lean startup um, can be spending a tremendous amount of money if they're spending it efficiently. Life sciences is one of those examples, right? So you're going to spend a lot of money on a life sciences company. It just is true. Um, so an analogy here is uh, a professional athlete. Um, uh, I met a gentleman in um, Omaha, Nebraska at a conference who was a, um, an athlete, a college athlete, and his first year on the football team, he had to consume six calories per day in order to make weight. 6,000 calories per day, and he had like 2% body fat. So, um, you know, that's a very lean, efficient athletic machine, and the same uh, analogy is true for lean startups. Um, a lot of money, and yet be, um, and and yet uh, still be very efficient. Yeah. Another um, myth um, is that lean startup is, I mentioned, is um, a shortcut. It's not. It's more like you acknowledge the scariest, riskiest thing, and, uh, and, you, and you address that first, rather than living in the actually, it's kind of harder. It, it expects you to um, have a lot of courage, and it takes a lot of courage to practice things. All right, so you know what? It is 2 o'clock Eastern, uh, 11 o'clock Pacific, and our sound and video is starting to break up, which I think means it's time. This is our, our signal that we are wrapped up here. Um, the questions have been terrific, 
and we will um, seek to put out um, a post where we answer more of the questions and provide more examples for those of you particularly who are asking very specific kinds of things. Um, and in the meantime, I just want to note that we will, of course, go into much more depth on all of these topics and with many examples and hands-on exercises at the Lean Startup Conference, um, which runs December 8th to 12th in San Francisco. Dennis will be running a full-day workshop on Lean Startup 101 on December 9th. And we've got tons more things happening on all the other days. And you can learn about that at leanstartup.co. All right, Dennis, thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you all for joining us and for your really terrific questions. Um, we look forward to seeing all of you online or on the internet uh, or in person soon. Take care. Thanks, Sarah and Janice, and thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the ne next webcast, What Should You Really Measure, on October 2nd. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference, December 8 to 12 in San Francisco. Bye, everyone.